0: All right. well good to see you again. I want to invite you to turn in a Bible in front of you or swipe there on your phone to the second half. There's a book called 1 Thessalonians. It's a tongue twister. In just a few moments, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But while you're turning there, let me get you up to speed to where we've been the last several weeks in our series called After Life. And I hope by now you've understood that the Bible is not as obsessed with the afterlife as we are. Can we admit that now? Each week I hope that I've disavowed you of this notion that it's all about heaven and hell and where you're going to go when you die. And it's not that those things aren't important. It's just that the Bible seems to care about it less than we do. So many times we take a verse here or a whisper there or a mystery and we conflate it to this whole big theological system or idea. And then we come back to the text and the Bible says, it's a little more mysterious than that. And you just got to trust me. So the other thing I hope that you've discerned is that there are some things we can know. That there are enough glimpses that we can trust that God will take care of us. So one of the big ideas that I've tried to convey in the last few weeks as we've looked at heaven and hell and resurrection is our afterlife two-step. Maybe it's because I was wearing cowboy boots last week and we're in Texas after all. I think it's important to reframe our idea of Christian hope with the afterlife 2 steps. So I hope that you've at least learned and settled on this the last few weeks. The first step is that when we die, I am confident that though our bodies go into the ground, whatever it is of us that makes us us, our soul is resting in God's presence. Step one. That sounds good. That sounds like what most every American hopes for, wants, and wishes. But the thing that's been de-emphasized, and this is what I tried to show you last week, is step two. So if step one is resting in God's presence, guess what? There's still more hope for you, baby. Step two is that we might be resurrected just like Jesus was when Jesus returns. Step one, resting in God's presence. Step two, resurrected at Christ's return, at the end of the age. Or as N.T. Wright, who is probably the most famous and well-loved living New Testament scholar, I mean, his initials are N.T., he puts it this way. What we're looking for in hope is life after life after death. God's not just going to stop with us resting with him, he is going to bring everything to a restorative, renewed state. Your body and our earth. That's Christian hope. So while I said that there's not a whole lot in the Bible about heaven and hell, in these little glimpses and whispers, do understand that when the Bible does talk about life after, it talks a lot about the end. And I mean the end with a capital T and a capital E. So I want to ask a question. What words or images, pictures, movies, books, zombie shows, what comes to your mind when you think about the end of the world And this may not be you now mature Bible reading Christian person, but just shout out what are some of the things. If you went to somebody on the street and you're like, tell me about the end of the world. What do you hear? Shout it out. The world blowing up. up. Raise your hand if you've ever heard or thought the world will blow up. Yes. Yikes. What else? End of the world. Nuclear war which is a lot like the world blowing up, right? And you know, what's interesting is that there's a blink and you miss it verse in First Peter that talks about fire. And we just assume, oh, yeah, world blowing up. Well, I'm not so sure about that. What else about the end of the world? Well, I, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like y'all said nothing. Thanks, Owen and Fisher. And then now you say one thing all at the same time. Rapture. What's that? Locusts. We got some plagues. Yo. Empty cars. Walking dead. What's that? Trumpets, seals, all of these things. Well, in our neighborhood group last Wednesday, we asked the question, what was the focus in your upbringing when it came to afterlife issues. Maybe you grew up in a church. What was some of the words, images, pictures, or teachings that you received growing up about the end of the world? And Miguel, guess what? The rapture featured prominently. Someone in our group said that she was a young girl and she had heard this notion, this idea that Jesus is going to come in the air and everybody that is Jesus's people is going to disappear and float up with him and so imagine being a young girl that walks into your house every day after school off the bus like always and you say mom nothing dad nothing brother and sister nowhere to be found and I wonder if she just started to look around for some clothes left neatly lying on the couch because why were they always naked when they got raptured right But this poor girl was devastated, freaked out, didn't have a cell phone to call, and only later realized, no, she wasn't left behind and her family raptured. They had to go to the hospital, and that's why they were gone. Or somebody in our group went to the other extreme, and he was a perpetrator of rapture fear. He talked about at his Christian college how they would wait and make a plan For someone to walk into the room, then someone hits the lights, they all jump and run away, and then somebody hits the lights back on, and this dude is left alone. And I love that it's in college because it's also a Christian group of guys. So even though there's some part of him that's probably like, ah, ha, ha, good one, guys, there's this deep-seated fear in the back of his head, like that little girl wondering, dang, did I get left behind? And where are their clothes? Why do they always go naked? In these ideas and stories. The rapture was a common answer. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Maybe you were a kid that feared getting left behind. Maybe because you grew up in the 90s like I did. And a lot of people you knew read the books called Left Behind. Left Behind books are fiction. And what if I told you that even their beliefs in theology is a fiction as well. This is the focus of our talk this evening when we are talking about the end of things, which is when Jesus comes. Maybe you didn't grow up in the 90s, maybe you grew up in the 70s, and the number one selling nonfiction book of the 1970s was called, ready? The Late Great Planet Earth. The number one selling nonfiction book by Hal Lindsey promoted what would be the bedrock of the Left Behind books and so much of American popular Christianity's idea about rapture and the world blowing up. And even though it was a best selling nonfiction Christian book, what if I were to tell you if we consult the Bible and church history, we realize that actually that theological set of beliefs is a fiction. As well. Hmm. Let me ask you this other question. Whether or not you answered out loud. Is what you think of when you think about the end of the world? Good news or bad news? Doesn't it follow that the one came saying good news? God's kingdom is here. Come, all who are weary, broken, sinners, come and find life, come and find food and water, come and find love and forgiveness, come and find freedom, uh, except at the end I'm going to really scorch you. Oh, except at the end you're going to be a miserable, plague-infested place before I ball this world up and throw it in the trash. Why do we go so quickly from the one who came preaching good news to thinking that at the end of this story of redemption, it's going to be all bad news. Well, the good news I hope we see tonight is that it ends with good news for us and the world. And the bad news for American Christians is that they've been misled by bad biblical interpretation. And the stuff that flew off the shelves the most is also the stuff that has distorted and de-emphasized the good news of Christian hope. As we saw last week, just like American pop Christianity has de-emphasized the Christian hope of resurrection, it has distorted the teaching of Christ's return. In particular, from one phrase, in one verse, only one time. And it became popular study Bibles that became a popular book in the 70s that became a popular series in the 90s, and it's distorted the good news of Christ's return. So let's turn to that source of confusion and get some clarity, I hope. We're going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Then I'm going to give you three images to kind of get at it, but we'll talk about this passage a little bit later. So let's read it for now, and then we'll get back to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. I'm in Philippians. Isn't that fun? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and here we go. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. That's the old school way of saying passed away. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that all who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Does that sound like something we just sang? hmm And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. We're going to use three images to explore the imagery swirling around the mystery of Christ's return. The first, I'm going to talk about a political cartoon by way of an introduction and by way of getting us in the right mindset. The second thing we're going to look at is one of the ways that Jesus' return is talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we just read and Philippians chapter 3. And it's like a parade. Number three, the shortest little section at the end. All of this symbolic teaching is really like a bunch of sign posts pointing us someplace down the road. They may not give us the full picture, but they're pointing us in the right direction. And let me tell you how much the Baptist part of me wanted to just say posts at the end so I could give you three P's To explore the imagery of Christ's return. But alas, let's talk about the political cartoon. Shout out to my favorite preacher, Brian Zond, for this illustration. Do y'all see this picture up on the screen? What do we see? A donkey and an elephant. What are they wearing? Boxing gloves, boxing shorts. Did y'all notice how the elephant has one half of the flag? And then the donkey has the other half of the flag. And they're standing on their hind legs, and they're staring each other down. You think they love each other? No. I know it may be hard to tell on this screen. Maybe you have to look at the screen behind you. But do you see Band-Aids and bandages? Can you all read what it says on their boxing gloves? It says, G-O-P and demos. Now, if I asked you, what does it symbolize? I would guess that every person in this room over the age of 18 who has not turned on Fox News or CNN for the last 15 years can still tell us what it means, right? Can you tell me what it symbolizes? The elephant symbolizes the Republican Party. But we don't see the word Republican. We see GOP, which is another nickname or symbol of the Republican Party. Then on the other side, we have the Democrats. Not the demos, not the donkeys, but the Democrats. So what does this symbolize? Well, it symbolizes the two major political parties in America and their division and distaste for one another. Let me say it this way. This symbol reveals a truth about our world. Yes or no? Yes. So the first thing I want you to now imagine with me. Imagine that this political cartoon gets buried in some time capsule or whatever, and it is unearthed by archaeologists. Archeolo- excuse me, two thousand years from now. So what year is that? Four thousand twenty-three. And somebody unearths this and they look at this picture and they see an elephant on hind legs, a donkey on hind legs, they see boxing gloves, they see them staring each other down and they get something of, they don't really like each other. But now imagine that the person that exhumes this image 2,000 years from now does not speak English. Now imagine that this person realizes, I think this is America. But the only thing they know about America is some paragraph in their hologram textbook that they learned in history class. 2,000 years removed. Removed via, via language, removed via time. What is so obvious to us in this room in 2023? Would it be a mystery to those in 4023? Yes or no? If we ask them, what does this symbolize? You think they'd be able to rattle it off as easy as you could? The answer is, heck no. And it doesn't mean that that person in 4023 can't know something about it. It just means that they've got to study in order to understand the culture that produced that image. They have to put themselves into the mind of somebody that lived in 2023 and is so over this. To where within five seconds we can look at that and say, I know exactly what that is. They need to do that kind of uncovering. So what I'm trying to convey to you with our first image of political cartoon is that the book of Revelation itself, which speaks so much about the end of the world, the end of the age, and so much about Christ's return and all these events that seem to swirl around it, dude, it is an elaborate, complex, 22 chapter political cartoon It is full of biblical and cultural imagery. So when you come to the book of Revelation and you see beasts and dragons coming up out of the ocean and the sea. Do not think, well, I guess dragons are real and they're going to come. When Jesus comes back with a tattoo on his leg and his robe drenched in blood, and he's got a sword sticking out of his mouth, do not think, as bad as that is with Jesus on a tattoo leg, that he's going to be walking around with the sword out of his mouth. Maybe the sword is a symbol for, I don't know, the Word of God. It's amazing what happens. When we approach a complex political cartoon, a.k.a. the book of Revelation, 2,000 years after it's written, and do just a little bit of digging to say, maybe there's some symbols here. Maybe with a little work, we can understand the culture that produced this text. The book of Revelation and the image we just read in 1 Thessalonians and the image that I'm going to read in Philippians 3 needs to be approached with caution. And we seek to understand the familiar, cultural, and political symbols that these authors use to communicate a truth. So listen, John was a political exile And he's probably, almost certainly not the John that walked around with Jesus. But John was literally kicked out of his place for writing some pretty gnarly political cartoons that the emperor didn't like. And he was probably a bishop of seven churches that were talked about at the beginning of Revelation. And he was writing in a genre that we just don't know that much about. And it was written... In these symbols, listen, so that it could fly under the radar of the people trying to kill him. And so anybody that got their hands on this cartoon, so to speak, would be encouraged that the end of the world is good news, not bad news. That when Jesus, the world's true king, comes, he's stronger than the king of Rome who's trying to kill him today. It inspired hope for a persecuted people. So riddle me this before we get back to our primary texts in 1 Thessalonians. Why would this guy John, trying to inspire hope to people that are getting killed by a false king, why would he write a book that can only be figured out in 1970 when some homeboy writes The Late Great Planet Earth or when a couple of guys write a bunch of books called Left Behind that have everything to do with the geopolitical issues with Black Hawk uh, helicopters and supercomputers in Russia 2,000 years after this dude wrote it? Please tell me that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. So hear me on this and we'll move on. The book of Revelation and these kinds of symbols of Christ's return are for us, but the book of Revelation is not about us. And what's happened is American popular Christianity has created so many theories and puzzles, one after another, proven wrong. Because I'm sorry, the Pope has been called the Antichrist. For 500 years. Martin Luther called the Pope the Antichrist. And you know what the Pope did? Called Martin Luther the Antichrist. So, can we all just take a breath and say, maybe there's more going on here, and we can understand it if we do a little bit of study and understanding of the symbols in this culture. So, that's the first image. That's my disclaimer. I'll also give you an advertisement. I really want to do a class on Revelation now. I've got some cool books, and I think that's what we're going to do soon. So stand by, and we can figure all about it. Because, yeah, locusts and trumpets and what? Just wait. But for now, let's go to number two, which is a parade. This is what we were looking at, the symbol in 1 Thessalonians 4. And another place we're going to see it is in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read Philippians 3, and then we'll talk about the parade. These are two verses at the end of Philippians 3. And it's the same imagery, the same symbol in the text we read earlier. Paul says, but our citizenship is in where? Heaven, God's realm, God's space. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I want you to hold on to these two verses and hold on to First Thessalonians. And I want us to merge these two symbols together because they're talking about the same thing. And the same thing they're talking about is a parade. The image of 1 Thessalonians 4 and Philippians 3 is of a royal parade. Okay? Just like the political cartoon, if somebody 2,000 years ago heard those two verses and heard 1 Thessalonians 4, they would look at a dog, a donkey, and an elephant and be like, got it. I know that. Because the citizens of a colony like Philippi or Thessalonica, When they hear that the king is going to come, do you think that they don't vacuum and clean up their dadgum house? Do you think that they're not going to roll out the red carpet? You think that they're going to be sitting in their living rooms with a robe watching Jersey Shore or whatever reality TV shows like no big deal, the king is coming? Of course not. And so when any dignitary And especially the king was coming to your town. You took that robe off. You put on your Sunday best. You clicked off survivor. And you run out of the city. And you've got the streets lined with every single person to greet the king that arrives. And so when Paul says we're citizens of heaven. Do we live in heaven right now? No. But our king does. And when our king comes from heaven, where we eagerly await a savior from there, when he arrives and is coming down our street, it's going to look a lot like 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to go and greet him. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 clips off the end of the image. 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't have what every single person that would have heard that text would have understood. If you're welcoming a king that's coming to your town, you're going to usher him back where? To your dadgum town. When he's coming to visit Philippi, the citizens of that colony that are greeting the king that lives at the capital city, they're going to go out to the road and they're going to say, Yes, you're here. Come on in. And they usher him into their city, their place. They don't watch, say, Yay, awesome, you're here. Well, let's go back. Let's go to heaven. Let's go to Rome. No, no. They are greeting their arriving king outside the city so that they may usher him into the city in celebration. So, when you go to Revelation 21 and 22, when he comes, everybody's there in the air with him. They go and they run and they greet him. And then he comes where? To earth, to the place we live. We've rolled out the red carpet and we say, You're here, and it's so great. I've only texted you, I've never met you. I've only emailed you, I've never seen you face to face. I've only heard your voice, but I've never felt your embrace. It's so good that you're here. And just like when a king arrives at your city, you can expect that things just might change. And that's the ultimate hope. That when Christ returns in 1 Thessalonians, we go out to meet him, and we usher him back, and he's going to renew us and the world. Understand that Paul's tone is pastoral. When we first read 1 Thessalonians 4, and if you've still got it pulled up, you can see that he begins in verse 13. Hey guys, I didn't want you to be unaware. I didn't want you guys to worry. I didn't want you guys to grieve like those who didn't have hope. He said, they're worried that people have died and they're just like us. They're like, it's a mystery. I don't know where they are. And so he says, look, they're safe with Jesus. And guess what? When Jesus comes back, he's got his whole entourage of those who have died before us. Are you connecting these dots now that we just read? And so now when Jesus arrives... Something is going to happen where he's personally present. There's a word in 1 Thessalonians 4 called the perusia, the appearing, the arrival, the presence. Jesus will be personally present and he's going to be kicking it with all those who are safe with him who've died. And we're going to be standing there looking at this and we're going to be like, this is crazy, And the dead who came with Jesus will be raised in a body like Jesus. Don't ask how it's wild. And those of us looking like dumb, dumb, saying this is crazy. We will be transformed just like they are with a body like Jesus. And this is where we say that's crazy. To which I say it is. But it is Christian hope. And just to add this disclaimer as well ask a scientist to explain just how far light has to travel from a star and you get some crazy mind bending explanations too try to ask a scientist how our earth was created they use incredible language and in how our universe was was exploded into existence and it's and it's rapidly expanding and they say we can't see it we didn't know but isn't this wild look around we're approaching something like that in these two passages paul's tone is pastoral he's saying it's a mystery but they're safe and will be changed his tone is also theological He says, if we're alive, we're going to meet Jesus' procession. The dead will be raised, the living transformed. And he's weaving together imagery from Isaiah and Daniel, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Revelation was written way later than the Thessalonian letters. But it tracks, it's a similar symbol. He talks about it in Colossians 3, that when Jesus appears, we'll appear with him. 1 John 3 says, You'll be like him because you'll see him as he is. Is your head spinning yet? This is wild stuff. And this is so much more robust and big than something silly like the world blowing up or something silly like getting swept away and leaving behind our clothes. How did we get there anyway? Well, I've got to tell you that the rapture was not a Christian idea until 200 years ago. One guy named John Darby translated the word for "caught up." Did you read that in First Thessalonians 4? One verse, one word, one chapter in the whole Bible. And he says, ah, I know what this is. Not Isaiah, not Daniel, not Revelation, not Colossians 3, not 1 John 3, not the biblical witness of 2,000 years of Christian teaching and theology and hope that there is one return. Jesus comes, transforms our body, renews the whole world. He says, I know what this is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's going to show up in the air and we're going to disappear into outer space with him. That's a little bit of a diminutive idea, but that's effectively what became the theory of the rapture. That Jesus comes, he doesn't come to the earth, he just comes and floats up there, and all those that are in Christ are going to sneak away with him. And then he takes one section, the only time it's ever talked about, in the highly symbolic book of Revelation chapter 20, and he creates this elaborate system and puzzle and unfortunately, it became the most popular American way of understanding it. It's what you read in Left Behind. It's what you read in the late great Planet Earth. It's what you see on comedy movies like This Is the End or Rapture Palooza, which is wild. And as a pastor, I can't really heartily endorse it, but it's pretty accurate to their theological system. Because it was popularized by a study Bible. And we had a church in Dallas that until recently was named after him. The Schofield Reference Bible. And my seminary that I got a master's degree from is one of the people, the institutions, keeping this drum going. But understand this. This is a minority, and I mean so minority view, And it's widely discounted by biblical scholars and theologians. So it's new. It's based on one verse that discounts all the rest of it that just speaks of Jesus' return. And you lose the image of a parade where they go up and come back and understand that well-meaning people believe this. And that's okay. But I don't believe that it helps us very much because it makes us think in terms of who cares about this world? I'll fly away. It makes me not care about the people that may be condemned by literal locusts or cut down by a literal sword. But understand that this is not the majority view. This is a small number of Americans. And it just feels that way because it's probably what you grew up with. But I'm telling you, it's not what Paul is talking about. It's not what John is talking about. I, in my seminary classes, would draw detailed timelines of the events to come, thinking that Revelation was about the 20th century, not the first. And when it came to the rapture, It would precede this period of the millennium, and it wouldn't be a return, it would be a little hook. And even as I was sitting there doing that, I was like, that looks like two returns to me. No, there's one return. There's one return. And scripture is clearly pointing us in that direction. Our third and final chunk is about signposts. All this symbolic teaching is like a signpost pointing us to, to some place down the road. These signposts don't give us an exact picture, but they point us in the right direction towards something better than we can imagine. I can't make heads or tails of all of this, but I trust the God who holds all things together that it will be good news and it will be glorious. And so some of the signposts that are Consistent throughout the New Testament are these seven. The first is that the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus literally says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. You're looking at it. And so Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. And every time someone says yes to him, and every time someone is clothed, and every time someone is fed, and every time someone is healed, what we see is little by little more and more of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. But it's not here fully. So if somebody says, is the kingdom of God here? You said, yes. Is it here in full? No. Because I know too many people have had a hell of a week, and they need more heaven. But one day I believe that when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will come in fullness. And it will be the way it always ought to be. The second signpost. Like we said with that word perusia, Jesus will be personally present at his return. I don't know how. It is a mystery. But we trust that Jesus will be here in some way the third signpost as we've read in 1 Corinthians 15 1 Thessalonians 4 am i making my point clear that there's so much more data about one return one resurrection the dead will be raised like Jesus so that's step 1 the resting this is step 2 when Jesus returns resurrected to be like him you got it and the living that are sitting there going duh, this is crazy They will be transformed in their body like Jesus, a body fit for a new heaven and a new earth. The reason why we think the world is going to blow up is because God has to deal with death and sin and evil. And in the political cartoon of Revelation 19 and 20, Jesus lets death die. Jesus. Casts away those who've been lying to you and telling you you're not loved. Death and evil will be defeated when Jesus returns. Judgment and renewal will follow when Jesus returns. Another clear teaching and signpost is that we're going to give an account for the life we lived. And God is grace and God is mercy and God is a judge who knows us by name. So we need not fear. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. And then finally, at the end of the Revelation political cartoon, we see in Revelation 21 what God always intended, that heaven and earth will be merged together as one. Next week, I'll try to make that clear to our children and answer some of your questions on this stuff. But I need you to understand that when Christ returns, the kingdom will come fully. He will be personally present. The dead will be raised like Jesus. The living will be transformed like Jesus. The death and evil will be defeated. Judgment and renewal will follow. Heaven and earth will be one. Not rapture. The rapture is not a thing. But the return of Jesus is what the Bible is pointing us toward. At this point, I'd like to close by reading some of the words at the end of the political cartoon known as Revelation. And while these might be symbols from Isaiah and Daniel, they are no less true, and they are for us. Hear these words in Revelation chapter 21. Verses three to five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The invitation for you tonight is this. Don't get lost in all the mystery. Try to let the hope in. Try to let this future inform your present. Because I know that you've shed tears this week. So cling to the day when every tear will be wiped away. I know that you felt abandoned this week. So cling to the hope that God will make his dwelling with you. I know that you felt alone, but know that God will be yours and you and this community will be his. So cling to this future hope and let it enlighten and inform and transform your present. Because we hold on to this hope not because we know the how, the when, the why of Christ's return. We hold on to hope because we know Jesus who has gone before us and will come back to us. And it's just like I said a few weeks ago. When you were a child and you were awaiting birth, you heard your father's voice, maybe. You heard your mother's voice, surely. And you knew this voice, you knew this presence, But you had no idea what the world would look like on the other side of birth. So too it will be on the other side of death. I can't tell you more than what I've seen in these signposts and images. But we know the voice of one who calls us beloved. Of one who promises that your tears are not wasted. That your hopes will not be lost. And so we look to him was and is and is to come amen and amen as christ burst forth from the tomb may new life burst forth from us and show itself in acts of love and healing to a hurting world and may the same christ who was and is and is to come keep our hearts rejoicing and running wild with wonder this day and always May the loving power of God strengthen you in hope, enrich you with his love, and fill you with joy in the faith, for the day of new creation is drawing near. Until then, work, wait, and go in peace.